When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ashes to ashes. Fun to funky. The Cricket Badger Rashes 2019 podcast, brought to you in association with Cricket 365, with your host James Butler, Cricket 365's Ollie Fisher, and journalist Akash Shivasubramanian. Oh, Cricket, 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 you cruel and horrible, nasty, lovely mistress. You take us to the depths of despair, 67 all out, and then you take us right back up to the top of the mountain where we can see Ben Stokes in all of his glory. What a test match at Headingley. And we're back, as you can expect, for another edition of the Cricket Badger Ashes podcast. Ollie and Akash, I hope that you are suitably impressed by Ben Stokes and Test Cricket. Ollie, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's not bad, is it? Seriously, despair at times like this for people that don't like or don't, don't make an attempt to understand cricket especially test cricket it is the purest form of any game it's the best Shakespeare play you could ever write over four or five days and we've got a Headingley 19 now to add to the Headingley 81 and I'm just emotionally exhausted after what we've seen over the last few days but god it feels good to have tied that it takes you through the mill cash doesn't it sport wow well, exactly. This is this has been a summer for England. I think they've had their luck, but certainly they're good on their luck. And uh, given such a performance, 
not only for England, I think this this particular test match is a good advertisement for all those people who say that test cricket is dead. I'm sorry, I can't hear you from top of the world. Test cricket is still at its best and it will continue to be as it, at its best because this is the best form of cricket. The atmosphere at Headingley as well, Ollie, that was superb. Headingley's seen some incredible test matches down the years, but that probably tops them all. It absolutely does. Yeah, it does top them all. Obviously, Headingley's one of those places, along with like Old Trafford and Edgbaston, that's regarded as a very intimidating and quite volatile atmosphere, you know, for visiting teams. But one of the grounds that you would consider to be a bit of a fortress for England in terms of home advantage, perhaps not results-wise, especially against Australia in recent times. It was an incredible atmosphere over all four days. The crowd were proper up for it. Okay, there were moments where we were perhaps a bit subdued and all those hundreds in the yellow caps uh, over by the scoreboard were perhaps feeling a little bit better about it than we were but managed to get to day one and day three and you know even the atmosphere towards the end of day one when we managed to roll through their tail end was absolutely amazing and then that towards the end of day three where we had that partnership going the hope was just slowly starting to build and build again and then I mean what we saw on day four was just absolutely ridiculous it was a cauldron of noise every single run being cheered there were even moments when you know we were getting a single and the next ball would be blocked and it, it was met with a with a with a rapturous cheer as well and that's just what the tension and what the at the same time the excitement was doing to people and then by the end you genuinely can't really find the words to describe that countdown of sort of the last 20 runs when we needed eight to win we hit that six the crowd just went silent and you could hear the pin drop as they waited to see whether Labuschagne was going to come round and claim it or not and then it went over his head and I was sat here in Geisley which is about six miles away and I'm sure I heard the cheer from where I was <laughs> it's just test cricket it's incredible it, okay you might get some games that aren't anywhere near as exciting as that but when you get something like that you get the feeling especially with how this Ashes series has gone that it's like a massive turning point in the series again like the World Cup final I've seen people on, on my Twitter timeline and stuff that I would never normally see tweeting about cricket it seems to kind of capture everyone's imaginations once again and you, you sort of look back to the 2005 Ashes series when they called it Ashes Fever and how everybody was gripped and people were being locked out of the ground and you wonder, you know, we're kind of witnessing something equally as special so it's 1-1 one, one with two to go and really that on paper doesn't do justice to what has been so far an amazing series You say it's people coming into cricket it's not always like that on the basis that we're saying this is the best test match ever none of the rest of them are like that this is the best ever but it's not the way to look at it, Akash, is it? That was a superbly fought test match both sides giving it their all, both sides landing a lot of punches, both sides taking the punches and, and coming back again. And I think it was credit as well to Australia at the end of the game, rather than be sour grapes and, and chuntering about stuff, handshakes, hugs and congratulations. We, were, we all discussed that this is not the most terrifying Ashes series that we're going to see. It's not the ashes that we, that we witnessed in 2005 or 2007 where, where Australians and English go at each other. So it, it's kind of become a subtle thing now where with, this, with words in the press conference and that's, that's pretty much it. But one good thing is that they've still not lost out on, on the field. They still managed to go head to head and played a fantastic test match. I think this is the best advertisement for test cricket. Not only this match, but the series itself, because the series has itself seen so many curves and so many bends that uh, we can possibly not imagine uh, from outside the ground. Absolutely superb. Absolutely superb. But it's not to be forgotten, is it? In the, in the hubbub and the excitement around Ben Stokes' heroic, not to be forgotten that it is only one all. There are two matches to go. 
Australia just need one good performance, Ollie, and they retain the Ashes. They need to get notch one win out of the last two test matches to guarantee they take the urn home. Yeah, this is it. I mean, it's kind of like a brand new two-game series now, and England know that providing there's not going to be any weather interruptions in the in the last two tests, which there might well be, you, you never really know with, with the British summer, we're still going to have to win them both presuming they are results. So it's kind of a, the, the same equation again uh, in that we still need two very good uh, performances to, to regain the urn. Australia will no doubt be licking their wounds today to what's gone on and it might take them a little bit of time just to recover after seeing the ashes literally slip out of their hands. They've got to be looking and, and seeing the positives from that performance and it was kind of a freak result in a way. Um, if I was Tim Payne, if I was Justin Langer, I'd be saying to them, you know, look, that that's one of those things we can't do anything about but ultimately we've we've basically outplayed them over the majority of that test match and it was just really the last the last day when it when it got away from us. So they'll, they'll no doubt be confident going into the last two tests that they can get the one win that they need to retain the ashes but for England it's whether they can ride that momentum and like I say we, we've got to be looking to win the last two tests now because that's what it's going to take to get the end uh, back home and on British soil and Ollie there's 10 days approximately between that ashes test match and the next one at Old Trafford in a way England would have wanted to go straight back out onto the pitch and, and t- to take that momentum straight into an, another game but I'd imagine that there's a few players in that dressing room that are just completely mentally drained after, after watching the, the end of that result and equally Australia you know it's, it's easy to say well Australia probably need a little bit of time out to, to lick their wounds but you know it also gives them time to think about it too yeah, you could look at it both ways. It tends to break for kind of both sides to get their head around um, and recover from what's gone on, obviously. For England, no doubt, they'll still be feeling the euphoria today and, and trying to kind of comprehend how they've managed to stay in this series. For Australia, like you say, it can go one of two ways because, you know, they can either use that time dwelling on what went wrong and thinking, has our moment gone? Are we going to lose the ashes from this point onwards? And like I say, those in charge, the you know, the leadership group that they keep referring to, they're going to have a job on to kind of pick the players up, say, trust in what we do. You know, we're a good side. We should have won that test match. We should have had this series over by now. And that's what they've got to spend the time doing. They've got to kind of go back to back to the drawing board in a way, perhaps. Um, and, you know, they might bring in some fresh legs or they might use the, the 10 days to rest everyone up, to rest all the key players up. And, uh, you know, they're going to most likely have Steve Smith back for that test at Old Trafford. Is going to be a big boost psychologically for them. And then Labouchain's obviously going to keep his place based on his performance in the two innings at Headingley. So it's just really exciting. It's set a, it's set a brilliant stage. You know, that's the, that's the way to look at it as an overview, is to say that that day yesterday, in and among all the chaos of Ben Stokes, thumping bowlers all over the ground is that they was a means to an end and the end is that we've now got an amazing sort of mini two-match series here to see who's uh, going to get the earn. And if, if England do managed to reclaim it especially when you consider we were so close to the brink then it's got to go down as the best summer of cricket ever surely hasn't it I think, I think it almost already does regardless of, of what happens from here I think what we've seen so far with the World Cup and then what we saw yesterday at Henley it's, it's already been remarkable it really has Akash you are our Indian Australian fan stroke English based pundit on this uh, podcast serve many different roles if I was to put you in that Australian camp a couple of days before the Old Trafford test match how would you rally the troops what would you say to them to get them galvanised and to go out Old Trafford firing an all cylinders well I wouldn't say a thing extra from what I said from the first three tests I would just say 
you're performing well, just hold on to those opportunities, just grab on to those opportunities and uh, make fullest use of it, be it the reviews or be it the catch or the, or the run-out opportunities. That's all. You have to just get hold of those elements and we're good to go because I can't complain much from the performance because we played a nearly perfect test match only for the special from Ben Stokes to spoil it for them. If not for Ben Stokes' counter-attack, I don't think they the tailenders had a chance of, of getting past the Australian. So I think... I wouldn't say much if I was just in Lang. I would just say that you're getting back your best batsman, so it's just going to make it more easy for you to to play the next one. The positives for Australia, Akash, were minus Labuschagne's obviously come in and played three innings, got 50 plus in in each one, and has looked a, a really good player. Well organised, he's got spirit, he's got fight, and he plays proper Test cricket. He actually knows how to leave outside his off stump, as you say. Stephen Smith coming back into the uh, into the ranks as well for the fourth Test match, and David Warner getting a 50 in the first innings at Headingley. Hopefully, from their point of view, that sparks him off and, and starts to cause him to score a few runs. So it's it's not all doom and gloom for them, is it? But one thing was which, which surprised me that they took one year to figure out that uh, Manas had in him to play test cricket and to be a regular feature in the test 11. I don't know why they have not given a thought about it because he is looked in good nick. He's looked in excellent shape and uh, the way he leaves the deliveries outside off is, is just the right way to play test cricket. It's shocking to see that the Australians have not realized that he's, he's one of the good batsmen and it has taken them one year to realize. One thing that they would be slightly worried about, not much, would be uh, Nathan Lynn's form. But I, I think that certainly uh, Justin Lang would just say that we know that you're world-class, you just have to perform. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. Their ethos, we love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. For England, it hasn't been all sunshine and flowers, though, has it? In many ways, the Ben Stokes heroics, and they were incredible. Yeah, I've seen many, many people on Twitter and social media saying that is the best test innings that they have ever seen in the context of the game, in what was hinging on that innings. It has to be, doesn't it? Because, you know, you, you look at Ian Botham in the past, he was given license to just go out there and thrash it, and it came good. Mark Butcher, fantastic innings, brilliant innings that won that test match, but it was a dead rubber. But in the context of that game at Headingley, Ben Stokes' innings, every single ball was potentially the last ball of that test match or England's hopes in that test match. So, you know, what was riding on that was huge. But in many ways, the Ben Stokes heroics papered over a few cracks, I think, in that England side. After day two, when England had been rolled out for 67, that was pathetic. The fourth time within 18 months that they'd been bowled out in Test cricket for, for less than 80. And that can't be forgotten, can it? That there is that within that England side. Not everything is hunky-dory. There may be a few players in that side who get an extra Test match purely because Ben Stokes did what he did, not because they did what they did. And that's the worry for me, Ollie, as we go into the fourth Test match, that England, they're nowhere near the finished article in Test match cricket. The bowling department looks fine. That looks absolutely superb. But batting-wise, all of those questions that we've had for the last two years, really, none of them have been answered yet. 
No, you've hit the nail on the head there. All the concerns that we had coming into this series have, have basically been confirmed. The top order's just basically non-existent at this point. You know, we made the decision late on, well, or rather Root made the decision that he's going to bat himself at three just before the series. And I thought to myself, either that's something that we've been planning for a while or it is an impulse kind of decision and he's thinking, right, I'm going to take the responsibility here. Barring, obviously, the second innings in that game where he did build a really, really good partnership, it must be said. And then an impulse contribution with 77 I thought that that's dodgy because then you have to shift everybody around sort of behind it just hasn't worked I mean as you say that first innings at Headingley was it was a disgrace to be honest it was really bad you could probably say there were four or five where you tip your cap to the bowler and say okay they've taken the wicket but for the others we gave our wickets away to be bowled out for 67 at home it was kind of painful to watch in a way it was as if we could do absolutely nothing to stop what was happening and when in perhaps previous tests we've had that partnership that come out and rescue us and got us to a semi-respectable score it just didn't come you know people were, were losing their wicket in silly ways it, it was yeah, probably out straight to Kawaja and you're just thinking he's literally been put in there for that very purpose and you fed straight into straight into their hands so yeah we didn't really bat with our heads screwed on at all on day two but I did say at the end of day one which was one of the days that I went to after we took the last eight wickets for 43 runs I think it was that you know they'll be in that dressing room Australia of course feeling a little bit deflated but saying you know looking at the bowlers that they've got available to them and saying you know anything they can do we can do better so then they you know they came out on day two and fair play and absolutely rolled us over Hazelwood in particular was fantastic you know he, he won't bowl many, many better spells than that well, I said I think Australia will feel that they were in control of that test match for the vast majority of it even down to that sort of last hour until basically Stokes decided I'm going to have to eat tea off here or we're going to fall about 50 runs short and that's when it all slipped away from them. It does kind of paper over the cracks for England. I think you're right as well that it might get a couple of players an extra match to prove that they warrant their place. I don't know if that extends to Jason Roy. You're probably going to chime in at this point, James, and say, I told you so. And yeah, you're right. You know, through three tests, you've been you've been proven right. It's just not worked. It's an experiment that's ultimately failed. Doesn't have the patience, doesn't have the right you know, make-up to, to be a test opener or maybe even a red ball batsman altogether. So there's a few interesting selection dilemmas off the back of this going into the fourth test. So we'll see how it goes, but it's kind of one of those where you've just got to get over the line somehow and, and I doubt that they'll even be thinking about it at the moment. They'll probably still be celebrating. Well, I'd hope they'd have a few ha- hangovers today because they deserve a celebration mm. to be honest after what happened on, on day four there. But I think the, the thing that frustrates me about England's batting is it seems to me that they, it's almost like they need to have a shed load of criticism and a humiliation before they actually come out and say, right, we're going to bat properly now. Because in that first innings, they did not bat properly. You know, even the ones that you say, where you know, the bowlers were getting it in the right place. They were, they were putting it in the channel outside off stump and they were, they were tempting the England batsmen and they were doing what you'd expect top-class test bowlers to do. But there was nothing dramatic in that surface, I don't think. It was a very good test wicket, as we saw it. You know, it lasted easily four days of that test match. And England just didn't have the patience. They didn't have the guile. They didn't have the determination. They didn't have that over-my-dead-body kind of attitude where they thought, right, we've, we've lost two or three quick wickets. We're going to shore up now and make sure we get through to lunch or whatever without any further incident. They just kept going in the same old blind fashion, the same old naive fashion. Right, we're going to counter-attack. We're going to do this, that, and the other. And it just doesn't work. And it takes... 67 all out and it takes all of the media and it takes the supporters to be tweeting that this is an absolute disgrace for them to have a team meeting get together 
and say, right, let's go out and play properly. And then we saw in that second innings, Roy, you can cast him aside because he's neither East nor Ornament, but Burns fell to the new ball. You can suffer that as an opener because that's going to happen to you sometimes. But then Root and Denley actually got their heads down. They got the nose over the ball. They were leaving outside the off stump, and they started to say, right, you're going to have to get us out now. We're selling our wickets dear. And that's what you want to see from your batsmen. You want to see them go out there and play with pride and play with passion. And it doesn't always have to be a runner ball. It doesn't always have to be a boundary fest. Sometimes in test cricket, you have a couple of hours where you rein it all in and you play within yourselves and you make sure that you consolidate and then you earn the right. Like Ben Stokes did in the second innings, he played really patiently, and then he earned the right to have a go at the end. And that's what Test cricket is about. You don't always start like a steam train. And England, to me, that is a massive worry, that they need to have these wake-up calls to actually understand how to bat in Test match cricket, Ollie. It shouldn't take that, should it? No, it shouldn't. It's a worrying sign that multiple times during this series already we've shown a complete lack of application um, and a lack of discipline. I mean, you, you instantly point finger at the top order. I think, you know, right about Burns in that second innings, you know, it happens. He's kind of earned the right to be dismissed cheaply because he's, he's been pretty good up until this point. But the players that you would expect to be able to dig in and to be able to play balls on merit, to be able to leave well, to be able to know when to put a bad ball away. You know, your likes of Root, who's, you know... <laughs> an established test player at this at this point, one of the best batsmen in the world. And you've got Denley, who's should be more comfortable, you know, batting at number four. And he he played a good knock, you know, he, he got to 50, and he'll be a bit disappointed about the way that he got out, no doubt. You know, Bairstow had, he got 36, and, and he'll be annoyed about the way that he got out as well, you know, that was, that was a very poor shot. But it's just for the, for the first time we've seen Sort of three, four, and five. Obviously, Stokes with the with an absolutely amazing innings, but seeing them all contribute, and it's just it's about building platforms. Sometimes in Test cricket, you know, you you've got five days. Sometimes in Test cricket, I wonder why you see players openers, you know, trying to hit the cover off the ball. You know, five five years ago, so you'd have been laughed at for doing that kind of thing, especially when it leads to you losing your wicket. So it was just nice to see them understand that we were batting to save the ashes and to, as you say, put a high price on our wicket. Say, you're going to have to find the perfect ball to get me out. Got kind of hope that that carries on. <clears throat> you know, they've got to be looking at each other in the dressing room and saying, we've seen what we can do there in, in that fourth innings. And there's a lot of quality within this squad and we should be looking to... Also, there's no reason when you look at our batting lineup that we, we shouldn't back ourselves to chase 359 to win. You know, it doesn't happen very often in Test cricket. In fact, it barely ever happens at all but I don't know I don't know as, as we've mentioned before I think it does kind of paper over the cracks a little bit it's amazing though what, what happens when you sort of batting for survival within a series and we saw that but it's important for confidence that, that some of those players got scores and just hope that that carries over to Old Trafford Akash if I run down this England side I'll give you my perceptions on them and see if you agree with this Jason Roy, well, you know what I already think about that. There's no much point in me repeating it. It's uh, what I've been saying for months now, that he's not a Red Bull Test player, and it's unfair to ask him to do that in Test match cricket. Rory Burns, he failed at Headingley, but I think he's got enough credit in the bank now. He's obviously learning. They've kind of given him a bit of a barrage of short-pitch bowling. He's got to learn to cope with that now, but he seems to be able to learn his lessons, and I think he'll come good again. So he's worth persevering with. Joe Rue... We saw in the second innings what he can do, and we know that he averages 48 in Test match cricket. You can discard somebody like that. Joe Denley, I, I understand what Ollie said, but I think even that 50 in the second innings looked a bit shaky at times, but at least he showed some fight, and he's shown enough, I think, to persevere with. But 
I can't see that England have the time with Joe Danley to persevere with him for an awful long time because he's 33 years old. You know, what, what is the payoff for persevering for another 18 months with somebody who then can only give you maybe another 18 months after that in terms of their career? So it might be worth just looking at somebody younger and actually persevering with them instead. Ben Stokes, no need to talk about him. He's guaranteed he's the world's best all-rounder at the moment. Johnny Bairstow, a lot of criticism of Johnny Bairstow I've seen over the last week. But me, pound for pound, he still remains to be the best wicketkeeper batsman that England have at their disposal. I've seen people say, well, give Joss Butler the gloves, but Joss Butler's A, not scoring runs, and B, he's not as good with the gloves, in my opinion, as Johnny Bairstow. And Ben Folks, he kind of, he's one of these people at the moment whose reputation is going through the roof because he's not playing in that Test match side. He averages 40, but I think that's a little bit misleading because he got a very good first couple of test matches and then got a little bit found out and I don't necessarily think that he's as good a batsman as some people make out he is he's averaging 30 for Surrey in the championship this year I don't think he walks into that test side and suddenly starts scoring centuries again so I think you stick with Johnny Bairstow and Joss Butler is the one who is the weak link really at the moment fantastic in one day cricket yeah don't take that away from him the same way with Jason Roy yeah in one day cricket one of the first names on the team sheet in that test match team 34 test matches, one century, high score of 106. That's not good enough. How many people have had that run in the side and only managed to return one century and still been stuck with as a, as a specialist batsman? I know he, he hasn't played as a specialist batsman all the way through that, but he seems to be somebody that at least needs a rest at the moment. He looks like he's absolutely shot in the same way that Chris Wokes does behind him, I think, in, in terms of his performances. Uh, Headingly as well, they just look like they need a rest. It almost looks like the ECB should just turn around to them and say, look, lads, you're in our pants for the winter. Go and have a couple of months on the beach and just get away from it for a bit and just relax and re recharge your batteries. Just going to recap there, there's only really Rory Burns, Joe Root, potentially Joe Denley, but Ben Stokes get, you know, actually inked in to that top order for me in Test Match Cricket. The rest are all either, I think, discardable now or have a lot to prove. I agree with most parts of your... Uh or analysis in the English uh, Test 11. The, the, the same questions that I've had is, would Jason Roy drop down, or would Butler fill in that role, or would both of them be dropped for somebody who's performing in the domestic circuit? So that's a question that they have to answer, because we've seen Oli Pope score a double century in the, in the recent week when the Test match is going on. So do they swap in, in because he's already in the Test squad and he knows how uh, Test cricket is played? So do they swap him for that, for that role? And the second one is about Chris Wokes. So Chris Wokes has not performed the bat, neither the ball in the last test. He's looked tired. He's looked a bit jaded as well. So do the, or does the fourth test bring in a comeback for James Anderson instead of Chris Wokes and then promote Jack Leach to that batting kind of role, which I think he's responsible enough to do that. So would they, would they do that uh, in, instead of uh, having Chris Wokes as the all-rounder? That's some questions that the English selectors must answer. And I think it's high time that they answer. But on the flip side, there's, there's this, if you change your winning combination late in the series, does it, does it do good for the balance of the side? Because then it brings multiple questions on whether you trust a player or not. And I think that's somewhere that uh, they might fumble with their decisions because they don't want to be looked at as, as somebody who's, who's not trusted the team enough to, for, for them to play an entire series to swap and change in the last moment. So that's where I think they would struggle to make a few changes. But uh, as you said, I think there are a few access to be done to, to be uh, done in this English Test eleven. And certainly, the first player that you and I could think of is Jason Roy. I, I mean, we've 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 
supported him in the past. We have said that uh, he needs he needs to be given the chance, and suddenly he's been given no, 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 too no, no, many no, no, chances. No, 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 which 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 we have we have been talking from the from the from the beginning of this podcast, but now to 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 for him to be dropped out of the test eleven, so that that's the question I'm asking: Should he be dropped out of the eleven, or should Butler be dropped, or do they have to make three as many as three or four changes in the in the playing eleven for the next game? I'll tell you what: after the sixty-seven all out, I was angry. You know, I was just absolutely gutted. There was part of me thinking, well. Yeah, I've built myself up for this summer and we've seen the World Cup success and then you're just thinking, well, you, know, you don't even want England to necessarily win the Ashes, but you just want it to be a cracking series so that cricket gets a full summer in the sunshine where people can see and, try, and, you know, and start to understand what we already know, that you know, cricket is a fantastic sport. And you're just thinking, well, you know, if England are just going to roll over and die at Headingley, then there's two dead test matches at the end of the summer and we just might pack, as well pack up and go home now. And I was thinking about our podcast and some of the other work that I've got and thinking, oh, how am I going to drag myself through the next two weeks of this rubbish? But then they came back, and they've, they've actually managed to salvage the series, and it's actually now a better series as a result of that. But you can't get past that 67 all out. And I was going to make four changes after that 67. I was going to take out Jason Roy. I was going to take out Joe Denley. I was going to take out Joss Butler. And I was going to take out Chris Wokes. I was going to rest Chris Wokes rather than take him out. I was going to bring back Anderson for Wokes, as you said, Akash. I was going to bring in Dominic Sibley at the top of the order in place of Jason Roy. I was going to bring in Ollie Pope in the middle order. And then somebody like Sam Northeast or you know, a middle order batsman that's got proven track record against the Red Bull in first class cricket. It, it, it kind of, with two games to go and the series still very much alive, you've got a choice here, haven't you? You either think, right, well, we've got to respond to that 67 not out. And we've got to respond to the fact that not all is right with English Test Match cricket, certainly in the batting department, and we've got to make some changes. And then you risk throwing in an Ollie Pope or a Sam Northeast or a, a Dominic Sibley for two matches where they're under intense pressure and they might fail and it might scar them. Or you, you could look at it the other way, that you think, well, maybe that happens in the winter. Maybe now we've got a live series, Akash. We, we maybe just get a little bit more cautious than that. We stick with guys that are already in there. And if Denley gets a few more scars and if Jason Roy gets a few more scars, then it doesn't really matter because we're going to discard them anyway. If you're going to be really cynical about it, you know, they're not going to be part of our test team in the future anyway. But you know, I've been saying from the start of this that Denley and Roy should at least swap in the order. If, if Roy's going to play test match cricket, he should be in the middle order. That's what he's done for Surrey. And at least give the guy a chance. You know, if he's going to make a Red Bull career... I'm not sure he's got the, got the game for it, but if he's going to do, give him that KP role at four or five in the order and just say, go out and, and play, your, play your attacking game. You've got nothing to lose because he's not scoring anything now. That's what I was saying, that uh, we should probably give him another chance at number four, or do we drop him? Then if, if we drop him, then you should uh, necessarily also drop Josh Butler because he's not looked in good form and he's run, I mean, he's run him out in the, in the last uh, test not he's done, but he's been sold down the river by Ben Stokes. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't count at as his mistake. So that's one innings that I would forget, uh, forgive him for. But the other innings, he's been poor. He's got the starts at, at some points, but he's he's just given his wicket. Certainly, he doesn't bring anything to the bowling. So do they change him for, for another batting all-rounder kind of thing? That's some, some of the questions that uh, the English selectors have because they have to do something now. They have to keep in mind that that 67 cannot cannot be negotiated because that is bad. But Ollie, 
In terms of the team selection, you heard what I said there about the two choices. You either make changes now and you bring in some youngsters or some new faces and you give them two Ashes test matches to counter, or you basically further scar players that you might ultimately discard. Which way would you go? It's an interesting dilemma, one that I'm glad that I don't have deciding saying. As you say, you can go one of two ways here. You either make the changes that you think give you the best chance of winning the last two test matches, which sounds very logical, you know, on, on the face of it, or you stick with the 11 that ultimately has just won you a test match, albeit it's basically one person that's just won that last test match. And, you know, you keep a group of, no doubt, very happy players together at this point. But I, I, I agree with the with the sort of four changes that you that you highlighted. I, I think you could make a very good case for making three changes for for the Old Trafford Test. Um, obviously, I think Anderson will come in for Wokes. I think Wokes is due a rest. Obviously, his body's been through a hell of a lot already this summer, and he did look a bit tired in his spells uh, at Headingley. Sibley seems to be the hot name at the moment. Obviously, there's there's Crawley as well. But Sibley, yeah, it, you know, do you give him a chance opening? Possibly, but you're throwing him into the highest pressure arena that you can, especially given now that the series is level. You know, the, like I say, it's a mini-series now and we've got a real chance of regaining the Ashes. Do you want to chuck somebody that's never played a test match into that kind of environment against arguably the two best opening bowlers in the world? The thing with that, Ollie, is that you can look at it just purely on kind of net gain kind of situation. That Jason Roy's offering nothing. Single-digit scores are not enough in an Ashes series. So almost whatever Dominic Sibley gives you is as good as that even if he fails massively, he's as good as Jason Roy. If you're going to bring somebody like Dominic Sibley in, I mean, you look at Sibley's county record, he, he scores centuries. He knows how to score runs. He does, you know, his strike rate is nothing to write home about, but he, he occupies the crease and he digs in. And that's what England need at the top of the order. And if you bring in an, a Dominic Sibley or an Ollie Pape or, or whoever is the next cab off the rank to, to replace the top order, you've got to say to them, if you bring him in now, you've got to say to them, look, you've got two Ashes Test matches to... Get used to Tesco match cricket. It's not going to be any more fierce than this. This is as, as big as it gets. You know, so find your feet, get in there, try and score some runs, do what you can, and you're on the winter tour, whatever. We, we believe in you. We're picking you because we believe in you. We, we've had too many times in the past where we've had openers play five or six test matches and they're discarded. We need, to, we need to actually pick people we believe in and stick with them. Jason Roy was picked because we believe in him. I mean, we as a collective sort of, you know, England cricket or whatever, the powers that be believed in him and they probably told him he's got the Ashes series um, and they clearly believe in him as an opener. Don't you think, though, they, they, they picked Jason Roy because they were almost desperate. They'd tried, they'd, gone, they'd pretty much gone through the county batting lineups. They picked, you know, they've, they've had a whole raft, I can't remember, it's, got, it's too many to count now between the end of Andrew Strauss. And, you know, none of them has quite worked. I mean, you, you actually look back at some of their stats and the likes of Carberry and Compton and Sam Robson stuff, he'd kill for their stats now as an opener for England. If they could, you know, if Jason Roy was tuning out the runs that, that they were doing, he'd snap your hand off for it. They're almost dead in the water as far as the conversation's concerned. They've, they've disposed of them. But, yeah, Jason Roy was never the right pick, was he? he it, this is my big bugbear at the moment, is that we're I picking... Mean, Test match cricketers because of their form in white ball cricket. And that's the same with Joss Butler. And I've noticed, Ali, on, on Twitter, I've, I've been quite vocal over the last few days tweeting about, you know, I, I'd get rid of Joss Butler. It's amazing how many people suddenly call me an absolute buffoon. I don't know anything about cricket because I'm suggesting that we get rid of one of the best batsmen in the world. Look at his test record. Look at his first class record. He is not the best in the world. One day cricket, of course he is, but not in test match cricket. 
it's wrong on that to assume that you know somebody who's very good in white ball is also going to be very good in, in red ball cricket, um, especially test cricket. doesn't often happen that way. But, I mean, you go back to the Jason Roy thing, I think it's a little bit disrespectful to suggest that we were scraping the bottom of the barrel by putting Jason Roy in there. I think it's a combination of the fact that um, he was the obvious option available at that time. And also the players that we picked in the past, the ones that you mentioned that had come in and been judged to have failed, otherwise they'd still be around now, the players that had been judged to have failed had all been of a similar mould. And we decided to go in a different direction with Jason Roy, someone who goes hard at the ball and he's going to take on new ball bowlers while, while the ball is still, you know, while the ball's still doing stuff. Um, it's, it was an experiment. I tried to reason with the logic um, bef- you know, before the series, when we recorded that that first podcast before the series, saying that could, I could kind of understand where they were coming from with it, and I'm glad that we decided to show faith uh, in somebody who, you know, ultimately is, is on top of the world at that point, having just won the World Cup and having performed well in the World Cup, etc. Um, it's an experiment that ultimately, to this point, has failed. Whether the powers that be judge it that it's failed to the extent that he's now dropped or he's now demoted down the order somewhere. That's a decision for them uh, and not for us. It has been a bit of a disaster. Yeah, you're right. That's it. But I, I don't think that it's fair to, to suggest that Jason Roy is not a good batsman. Perhaps not a good red ball opener, yes, but I can totally understand why we decided to make that call uh, early on in the series. So now we, we wait and see what happens. I don't, I don't know if you listened to the, the podcast I did with Michael Carberry recently. And if you're listening and you're only listening to the Ashes podcast, there's plenty of other cricket podcasts out there. So Fill Your Boots is uh, 90, this is the 97th, actually, of uh, Cricket Badger podcast. So plenty of back catalogue to uh, fill your boots with. But when, when I had Michael Carberry on, you know, he was a, obviously a proven county opener. Said, you know, you play in a certain way as an opener. You play to take the shine off the ball. You play to protect your middle order. That's your role as an opener. You know, it's sometimes ugly runs, but you, it's all about getting runs and getting in. He obviously played test match cricket as well and was, was one of that list post-Andrew Strauss, who have been discarded, I think, in Carb's case, after six test matches. But he said that he felt that the Jason Roy selection was actually a bit of a, almost like a two fingers up to the, county pros out there that were you know week in week out opening against the red ball earning their stripes so to speak scoring the runs and learning their craft because opening the batting is such a specialized position inside the inside a side and to then hand it to a guy that smacks a white ball around and has never really had any experience of opening against the red ball he felt was a bit of a you know two-fingered salute to the rest of the county scene yeah, but again, it comes back to this thing of the players since Strauss that we've brought in, as I said, have all been of a similar mould and have been from the county circuit. You know, Compton racked up a shed load of runs on the domestic circuit and he looked like a fairly safe bet. And, and the players that we've had since have been the same kind of same kind of thing. Yes, very good red ball county championship players, but they've come in and ultimately failed for England. And that's that's why, as I say, I understood that they went with something a little bit different this time around, especially given that opener's going to be such an important position in this Ashes series, given the, given the skill of the opposing bowlers. Now it comes back down to the, the thing again of whether you, you acknowledge that Roy's got three, tests, three Ashes tests under his belt here and you assume that he's learning from his mistakes all the time, or do you go back to the thing that failed before by bringing someone in who's performing well at county level like I say, throwing them into an absolutely, you know, the, the the most kind of tense circumstances that you can think of, a real pressure cooker of a situation, and hoping that they perform. And if not, then you risk kind of scarring them. You know, what if what if we bring Sibley and then he gets a pair at Old Trafford? 
you know, what what happens then? Are we, are we having another conversation in hindsight saying that it wasn't the right thing to do and, you know, they, they shouldn't have made that call? Ultimately, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. And as I keep saying, I'm glad that I don't have to make these decisions. But it's just not, I don't think it's just as straightforward as saying, Roy's failed, get him out and, and, and move everybody about again. There's also a question about Pope, of course, bringing him in. I personally think that you, you can definitely justify a lot more uh, swapping out someone like Butler, who, as mentioned, has not performed at all in this series and actually doesn't really look like... It doesn't look like there's the, the discipline in there. It doesn't look like he can be the guy to build important partnerships, you know, when we're four, four down, five down. And then you can maybe bring someone like Pope in there and if you swap in a seven for a seven, it's not going to have as massive an impact on the game. You can perhaps understand that a little bit more going into a, to a test as crucial as this. But as for the opener situation, I don't know. I guess we just wait and see what happens. I'm sure there'll be stuff that comes out over the over the next 10 days before the... Uh, before they do the toss at Old Trafford to suggest where, where we're going with it. But I think I think Roy's going to be given all five tests, to be honest. That's my gut feeling. Either that or he's going to get a nice convenient little niggle and disappear for two test matches before the winter squad's announced. That'd be, that'd be quite a, a nice way of getting around it, I think, in, in terms of mm, that. Yeah. We're offering you the opportunity to play your part in the growth of the Cricket Badger radio show podcast. We have quite literally gone through the roof in terms of listeners over the last year. And there's an opportunity for you to get your business in front of the cricket world by sponsoring or advertising on the Cricket Badger radio show podcast. We're giving away headline sponsorship and also a maximum of four adverts per week. Get yourself on the Cricket Badger radio show podcast. Get yourself in front of our fantastic listeners and help the podcast continue to grow we've had some fantastic guests over the last year i've lost count of the number of test caps and captains that we've had some great stories too and you could be alongside those big names offering your services to the cricket world get in touch cricketbadger at hotmail.com or telephone james on 077-999-64812 to grab this with both hands don't let it drop through your fingers Akash, if you look at uh, you know what we've just been saying there about you know, red ball batters, test match top order, have we been guilty in England of maybe discarding people too soon? It's a, it's a massive step up. You know, if Dominic Sibley gets picked, he scored runs for fun for Warwickshire, long innings, but it's going to be a massive test for him to come into an England test lineup. It's going to be a big, big step up. Is it unrealistic to expect? Top order batsmen to acclimatise to the consistent line and length of the bowlers and the pace of bowlers and the guile of test match bowlers inside even 10 test matches. You've got to almost identify somebody, haven't you, and actually stick with them and say, right, you've got a couple of years here. We're going to really believe in you. You've got a couple of years here. We know you're good enough. Go out there and show us. That's one thing that the English fans have uh, failed in the past. I tell you why also. I think uh, the success of Alistair Cook and Andrew Strauss has put immense pressure for the other openers. They have set the benchmark for the openers. So now the, the fans think that everybody has to be Alistair Cook or, or an Andrew Strauss to go out and score double centuries, centuries and get the team out to a flying start. That doesn't happen. That, that's just two batsmen in the past who have done extremely well. It's unfair for these players to go out and, and to be put in under such pressure uh, or, or just even the trial by media by saying that they're not fit enough to play for this English side. Just give them 
a series to prove their worth and I, you just inform them that you, you have the series to prove yourself and nobody will question you that time. You just go ahead and if you can perform, then you're good to go. If you don't, you're just out. So make it clear for them and also the fans, don't don't keep such high expectations of your openers because those two openers are just once in a decade kind of openers. So it'll take time for them to identify such players and uh, till then you just have to believe in the, in the openers that you have. In a way, Ollie, social media is responsible for an awful lot of stuff, isn't it? And it's, it's great for many things. But I, I often refer to Gary Balance. Now, if you mention Gary Balance on Twitter, I've, I've watched an awful lot of Gary Balance playing for Yorkshire. I've got a huge amount of respect for Gary. I think he's a cracking player. You watch him for Yorkshire churning out thousands of runs, and he looks the real deal. He came into Test Match Cricket. He scored centuries. He did really well. And then he struggled. And as soon as he started struggling, and as soon as Sky identified a perceived technical fault in his game, then that was time to lump on. On, show, on social media, every time he mentioned Gary Balance, ever since then, it is, oh, he's not good enough to play Test Match Cricket. Now, you look at his record, it's better than most of the people in the current side. And there's something to Gary Balance. He's a run scorer, and that's a big trait. If you can score runs in, in cricket, that's not a bad asset to have. What, what do you do in that situation? Surely somebody from the England side should be, you know, if, rather than just discarding these guys and just saying, go back to your counties, you know, sod off, we, we've done with you. you know, what does the England batting coaches do? Surely they go up to Headingley and they sit with Gary Balance, they look through some videos, they work on, on particular things, and they try and help him get better. So if they ever call on him again, he's ready. But aren't we too quick? Social media, the way the TV kind of portrays certain players, Keaton Jennings, Gary Balance, etc., we're very quick to discard them and basically just cast them aside as rubbish. I think that's an interesting point that you touch on about what is the role of coaches. You know, the, it's, it's the test side. They're meant to be the best of the best in terms of coaches. There seems to be this expectation, especially given players, especially those players who have performed at county championship level, that they're going to come into the test arena, they're going to come into this England setup and already be the finished article. That's not, that's not how it works, you know. Coaches are there to improve players. The important thing is that you see growth, particularly in the in the younger players, the younger batsmen, younger bowlers uh, that, that have been brought into the fold. That if they're given five tests to go out and, and show what they can do and they're backed to, to play in, in these important series, you know, if, if something's not quite right from the, from the first couple of tests, they should be sitting down with them and, and pointing out areas where they could potentially improve. Not talking about totally reinventing players, you know, telling Jason Roy to go out and play a completely different way to what, what is natural to him or, you know, anyone really in the England top order. Um, we should be looking to improve players as soon as they come into the... Because making the jump from county championship cricket to test cricket is just... It's not easy. It's not straightforward. Uh, in fact, it's a damn sight more challenging. I mean, we're looking here at an Ashes series, which is on home soil between two teams that stack, stack up relatively similar to one another. You know, there are more challenging series... For us than this you know you talk about going down to india and and how bad a record we had you know over the years down there and how that's a, a very different set of conditions to play in uh, west indies as well being another good example i mean remember when we selected adam Lyde for the squad to go down to the west indies after he'd had a very very good start to the to the county or he'd had a good county championship season with yorkshire sorry and we didn't give him a game out in the west indies you know on these flat yeah. tracks where he could have wrapped up runs. He could have built confidence. And then we decided to pick him for the Ashes. And it's like throwing him throwing him in the deep end. You know, he was carrying drinks all the time out in, in the Caribbean. And then, um, you know, perhaps predictably kind of crumbled under the, under the pressure of the Ashes. Yeah, I think the way that we manage bringing players through 
the way that we manage integrating them um, and and uh, easing that transition between county championship and, and test level, we could do a lot better with that. And I think perhaps what we're seeing now, you know, we go back to, you'd have thought we'd have lost this test match, wouldn't you? But you go back to how this win has kind of papered over the cracks and stuff like that. Perhaps we are seeing a culmination of the fact that our top order's a mess because, you know, when we're just not developing players right. We're not we're not sitting down with them. We're not reviewing the footage. We're not coaching the little the little chinks in the technique and that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, perhaps perhaps some fingers do need to be pointed uh, in that direction. Um, and, of course, it's all going to be centred around the batting at the moment. It's going to be interesting when we have to come around to finding, a, finding replacements for Anderson and Broad. Who knows? It might be might be our bowling all of a sudden isn't good enough. It's, it's interesting the way that it works. But, yeah, I think we could improve on that front. It's quite easy, isn't it, as an England coach, to coach someone that's doing quite nicely. You know, if you... If you're Chris Silverwood at the moment, you're picking money, up money for, for old rope, aren't you? I know he's worked with Stuart Broad over the winter and he's obviously improved Stuart Broad. They've changed his action, they've changed his run-up and uh, he had proofs in the pudding. But Graham Thorpe, as a batting coach, has got a lot more on his plate, I think. And in a way, you know, the, the next few, next sort of 12 months with England's test team are going to be quite interesting, I think. A, who they pick for the winter, who they pick for the fourth test match and how they start to manage players and how they start to bring these players into the side because there is need for change and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they do that because winning one game at Headingley against a a very, I think a very average um, Australian side, certainly batting-wise, it looks fantastic. Ben Stokes' heroics are amazing. It shouldn't paper over the cracks of definite deficiencies in that England setup. Let's get back into the good bit. Ben Stokes, Akash, that was in my opinion the best innings at test match level i've ever seen in the context of the game what was riding on it his skill in basically defending at the start and saying right you're not going to get me out and then his ability to just kind of go through the gears he he almost went from second gear to fifth gear when jack leach joined him at the crease i just yeah the skill to do that and the the confidence to do that and the confidence in your own ability to do that it's just incredible at one point, uh, not many people noticed it, but he was two of 62 deliveries or something. So to go from two of 62 deliveries to, to, to being scoring a century at that rate was incredible performance. And also the fact that he did not fear the bowlers when there's just one wicket. He just went on and played as aggressive cricket. And he just put, he just turned the pressure on to Australians, which, which then they faltered under pressure and uh, just gave the victory to, to the, I mean, not exactly gave the victory, but made it easier for them with, with their uh, deliveries. So it hats off to Ben Stokes because he just he just turned the pressure from England to Australia and then he performed as, as he always does. Uh, and in the past, we were, I think we've also doubted uh, Ben Stokes for, for his test performances, for not being able to convert his starts or for not even able to convert his red, uh, red ball performance into, into one thing, into the things that we see in, in the limited over. So... Hats off to him for, for, for such a dramatic change from, from, from the Bristol incident to, to being, I think, nearly knighted or for, for petitions being signed uh, for him to be knighted. So soon enough, can we see Serban Stokes? I'm not sure, but I, I'm hopeful that we can. What, what you mentioned there at Bristol, which is, uh, well, dim distant memory, really, in, nowadays in terms of the career of Ben Stokes. But in a way, regardless of the rights and wrongs of that night, and there were quite a few potential rights and there are quite a few wrongs but that's been the making of him hasn't it the fact that he's had to go through that and you know the, the lows of that incident and to come back 
and basically just throw himself into cricket in his family and just get on with it. He's shown himself to be a, a pretty special human being, hasn't he? He's learned immense from that incident. And now, if you see Ben Stokes, he's, he's a changed person, not only off the field, but even on the field. On the field also, we, we can see him calm and composed and not take, not too panicking the, the way he used to before before that incident. So he's come a long way from, from that four sixes that uh, Bradford hit him to, to being the World Cup uh, hero and to being the Ashes hero now. So it's it's been a good redemption curve and it's certainly good enough to be made into a movie. Oli, I don't know if you saw the press conference last night, but somebody, one of the journalists was trying to obviously write a piece about the redemption story and they said to Ben Stokes, you know, the lows of uh, Bristol, the highs of today, it must make you want to appreciate the highs even more. And he just looked back with his big eyes and he just said, a year ago is a long time. And that was his answer. That He just left it at that. I don't want to talk about that. It, yeah, it is, it is a special story, isn't it? The fact that, you know, as Akash just hinted at there as well, the final over in the World T20 final. You know, there's been some pretty horrible lows for him where he's been devastated and he's been down, he's been castigated, he's been on the front page for the wrong reasons. He's now on the front page for all the right reasons. Yeah, you're right. I think it's one of those where, um, you know, you come back to that old saying of there are no mistakes in life, only lessons. Um, and I think Ben Stokes is an absolute prime example of that. Obviously, the World T20 final was kind of the emotional heartbreak and sort of disappointing his teammates and disappointing his fans. And then what happened in Bristol was, was for an altogether different reason. It was for what happened off the field. So now you've got, you know, two kind of... Two incidents, one where you're growing as a player, one where you're growing as a man. The culmination of that is what we've seen over this summer. I think the way that you put it is perfect. You know, 12 months is a very long time. It's amazing how much you can see people develop, both both as cricketers and, and as actual people off the field. He's got him now into position. I, I totally agree with, with what you said earlier. I think he's the best uh, all-rounder uh, in the world at the moment, uh, certainly in test cricket anyway. Um, and, and who'd have thought that from the, from the lows that he's had? Um, he's become a hero from the World Cup and as if that wasn't enough for him you know he's got a bit greedy and decided that he's going to um, make everybody want to marry him with that ridiculous innings at Headingley and yeah I agree with Ash's, Akash's idea as well that um, they should be making a movie about him to be honest he, he's just so nice though he's a, he's a person he's a player that you can very very easily get behind obviously it helps if they're performing well uh, as he has been doing this summer and as he has been doing over the last few years um, but just a very, in my opinion, a very, very likeable guy. And there's something typically typically English about him uh, in the never-say-die attitude and the mental resolve that he shows. And I just, I couldn't be happier to have someone like him playing for England. And I, I think he's exactly the kind of player that's going to be inspiring the next generation. They're going to be playing in the back gardens today on a sunny bank holiday and they're going to be pretending to be Ben Stokes. And that's ultimately the, the legacy that something like this can have. You know, he obviously works really hard as a player. He obviously really dedicates himself to the sport. And we even saw in that, uh, well, both in the Lord's 100 and then the Headingley 100 and the match-winning century, that he's capable of playing that boring, in inverted commas, innings where he, he dead bats everything and he, he's, you're not going to get me out. I'm selling my wicket expensive today and then he can just open his shoulders and play the more flamboyant stuff as well he, you know and he, he's also the guy that Joffre Archer limps off with a bit of cramp he says Rusey throw me the ball and the ball you 20 odd overs from this end the, you know, the, the work ethic the dedication and the commitment to the cause it's fantastic element you know aspects for him to have but for Joe Root to have him in his side must be fantastic you know brilliant I saw Michael Vaughan the other day say you know I had Freddie 
Mike Brady had Ian Botham. Joe Root's got Ben Stokes. Yeah, it's as simple as that, isn't it? It is. It, it, it's, as you mentioned, it's exactly the kind of player that you want to have in your team as a captain, somebody who's capable of contributing consistently with both the bat and the ball and, and ultimately will, will never be never be defeated. You know, they're never going to have their head down and they're never going to... Uh, never going to be traipsing around the field. They're always going to run up and give it everything. I mean, Vaughan said um, as well on TMS on either day one or day two, I can't remember when it was, um, that every time that he turns up, every day that he turns up to a test match to commentate, he sees Stokes doing fitness work and, and strength work. He's out on the field or he's, he's always in the gym. He's basically the player that he notices from, from the current England group that's that's working the hardest, you know. Ultimately, yeah, you come back to the mo- the role model thing. If you want him to set an example to future cricketers, not even not even young players, you know, players that are sort of 16, 17, perhaps playing for club size and just a, a lesson to keep working hard and, and that you can come back from literally anything. Um, and, and I think as well, there's um, there's something about him in the way that he just gets on with it. You know, you'll never hear him outspoken in the media or like like perhaps some have been in the past, uh, particularly on the Australian side. He just he just gets on with it. And even in that post-match interview yesterday, you could see that it hadn't really gone to his head. He was just sort of in amazement at what he just managed to achieve. It was very obvious, obviously very complimentary to Leach for holding down the other end while he was while he was in his onslaught. And he's just like I say, he's just a very 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 likable guy and someone that I'm proud to, to say that I've seen and, and, and proud to call an, an England cricket player. Well, I'm, I'm filling up, mate. I'm filling up with you. the emotional stuff from, from Ollie Fisher. Um, you know, I had that side in me, did you? <laughs> no, no, you'll keep it well hidden. Uh, the, um, this movie then, if, uh, yeah, the guy, the actor that played Ron Weasley must uh, play Johnny Bairstow, mustn't he? Who plays Ben Stokes and who plays uh, Jack Leach in that uh, Titanic stand? Vin Diesel plays Ben Stokes. Um, just going off the absolute tank kind of. Actually, probably Ben Stokes would want to play Ben Stokes. <laughs> yeah. And I'd, I'd absolutely let him do that. As for Jack Leach, that's that's a trickier one. Got to be someone with glasses. Type. I mean, the way the way he yeah. turned the steam off his glasses throughout that stand was fantastic, wasn't it? That was fan- That that was brilliant theatre as well. Just just to give us that two minutes between overs to compose and for for Stokes to kind of catch his breath. Well, you see Jack Leach, who's now, by the way, got free spec savers spec savers glasses yeah. for life. They've confirmed, yeah. which I think is. You know, it's up there with the knighthood if Stokes eventually gets that. He must be thinking, where's my sponsorship deal from all that? But, um, yeah, I don't know who plays Leach. I'll tell you what, we'll throw it over to the listeners for next time. If uh, if you want to tell us um, who you think should play Jack Leach in Stokes the movie, at cricket underscore badger on Twitter or cricketbadger at hotmail.com on the emails, tell us who you think, the cast, the cast of England, who would play the various players that uh, featured at Headingley for England in the, uh, the last Test match. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. 
Akash, over to you for a Joe Root chat then. There's a, you know, after the 67, people were calling for Joe Root's head. Um, obviously, the fact that Ben Stokes did what he did has kind of maybe postponed that chat for a while. Is Joe Root the right man to captain England? <laughs> well, I think Joe Root is the right man to captain England. I think he's got... The point about uh, captaining England is you want your best batsman or you want your best player to be the captain. And certainly in the last uh, 18 months, I would say he, he's been the best player. So I think it's it's right that he captains the side. And uh, since he's now experienced with the bat and he knows how to play around, so I think he's, he's good enough. It's just that the resources sometimes for him are not at that level that he wants them to be. So... I think it's it's right time for them to talk about all the resources that they haven't shared to to have the right combination at the right times, so that uh, it's not just England winning just one or two sessions, but winning the entire day in a test cricket in a test match, uh, which I think should be the right way to uh, to 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 be confident in, in a test series. It's an interesting one with Root um, because even though he's 28, it still feels like he's kind of learning the ropes, especially when it comes to to test captaincy. Um, I think. He's been criticised at various points during this series. I think, you know, if you're looking at potential criticisms uh, in that last test alone, I think he let the Stokes and Wokes spell in that first innings go on a little bit too long. You know, the game started to get away from us a little bit, especially with with the way that Wokes was bowling. Um, But I guess as a captain, you can't really do that. They're the uh, first and second change bowlers for a reason, and you've, you've got to bat them. But, you know, I think also Root probably does a lot that the cameras don't see. You know, I'd love to have had a sort of hidden camera set up for the dressing room at, at various points during that Headingley test, just to see how uh, he handles captaincy in terms of man management, in terms of talking to individual players, in terms of rallying the troops when it looked like we're dead and buried. I think there's a, there's a lot of that side that people don't know about that he, he probably deserves a lot of credit for. I, I don't think he's the best captain, and, and I don't think he's anywhere near the worst. Um, but ultimately, I think he's going to be judged on results. And if he manages to regain the ashes in this series, then it's going to be a massive green tick on his record. So we'll see from this point onwards. I think the 70, 77 that he got in the second inning certainly helps his confidence from a performance point of view. He always wants to be seen to be leading from the front with the bat. Hope that carries on into the last two tests and he racks up you know, over 200 runs in those games. And um, if he does that, then it could very well lead us to, to him lifting that urn at the Oval. It's a fine line, isn't it, between uh, you know, success and failure and you know, celebrations and your performance being analysed, Akash. And Tim Payne was one wicket away from taking the urn back to Australia. And yet now it's one of the piece and people are starting to question his tactics. You know, certainly towards the end of that innings of Stokes, when he was putting the field back, wasn't necessarily trying to keep Stokes off the strike and, and maximise the um, balls bowled at Jack Leach. Reviews as well. As I, you know, you know from previous podcasts, I don't think Captain Sh- should be responsible for umpiring, but they are at the moment, and he's been very bad with the way he's used his reviews. He's coming under fire now, isn't he? At the, the beginning of the series, I told that this series is for him to reckon, because if he doesn't, if he doesn't perform, I think they're going to be fingers pointed at him because his role in the in the side is very limited. His role can be easily replaced by, say, a Matthew Wade who can just go on and bat and uh, keep uh, wickets. So. That's one way, one one thing that uh, he struggles because Tim Payne has not played well with the bat. So fingers would be pointed at him after the series and on his contribution to the batting order because certainly that's that's one where one place where I think he's lacked 
and also the second place where he's lacked is with his reviews, which I think cannot be. I, I, you can't do much about it because sometimes you you have to take the risk. You have to take, go with your gut, and that's what he's done. He's gone with his gut feeling and taken reviews, which 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 sometimes has not been. I mean, which most times has not been good in the in the third test. Probably they would do a kind of a video thing where they would go go back and then rewind to all the reviews that he's taken and then analyze over it. Which, which I think they should do in modern day cricket. The way that Ben Stokes seemed to be able to to find gaps with ease uh, when he when he really got going in his innings, you've got to kind of have some accountability for that as a captain. Yes, Ben Stokes deserves credit because you find the gaps ultimately, but I also think that he he took far too long to put men deep. I understand you're going for that one wicket that you need to win the Test match. But as we saw, it could, a game can get away from you very, very quickly. And when he needed to slam the brake on, he couldn't do it. He, he literally couldn't do it. It was out of control. The way that they managed the rotation of the strike between Stokes and Leach, I thought was very sloppy. So many times, got it down to the fourth ball of the over, and Stokes would just drop one, and, and they'd run a very easy single. And then you come back to the reviews. He's been awful with reviews. Again, not 100% blaming him for that because I think the bowler has a lot of say. That one that will always be remembered, the one that was was missing leg stump by about half a yard, and then they needed that review for the Nathan Lyon, uh, Nathan Lyon shout, which I'm not actually convinced was out. To be honest, um, I don't think I've he was. Seen, no, I've seen a lot of stuff, you know, the front page of papers and stuff about Australia being robbed because it was hitting. If you look at the actual Hawkeye. When it clips the front pad, it changes trajectory. Does the actual, does the Hawkeye only slightly? But it suggests yeah. to me that if that ball carries on once it's clipped the front pad, it, it might have only been been marginally clipping leg stump, maybe even missing altogether. And of course, if it's umpire's call, it would remain not out. I think the umpire Joel Wilson, who's had a bit of a nightmare at various times during this series, I think he actually made a decent decision. And Hawkeye's done him up like a kipper. Uh, and really exposed him to ridicule, certainly down under. I, I think if you study Hawkeye, it shows it would have probably just been clipping, which would have been umpire's call, and he would have been not out, and everything would have been exactly the same. Just to finish off, you mentioned two fingers up there to Tim Payne and, and Nathan Lyon. Did Nathan Lyon yesterday drop the Ashes urn? He had the simplest of runouts. It looked like he just had to catch the ball, collect it, take it to the stumps. Jack Leach was sprawled, desperately trying to get it back about halfway down the track. He would have been out by a country mile and Nathan Lyon let it slip through his fingers, Akash. Was that the telling moment? Is that the, the iconic moment of the series where Nathan Lyon let it slip through his fingers? It's just one of the iconic, one of the chances that they missed. But uh, certainly it's one, I think it's a iconic moment in the series that he gave way for England to come back into the series, which they would have been done and dusted if he had just converted it. But having said all of that, I think the Australians will still show faith in Nathan Lyon because he's one of the best spin bowlers. So it's just, it's just a matter of a few wrong decisions, which I think they'll change over the next two test matches. He's the GOAT, isn't he? He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. I don't know if he gave his na- that name to himself or somebody else gave it to him, but uh, he's uh, gone up past Dennis Lilly on the Australian wicket-taking chart, so he's no mug at all, and I think England have played him well in this series. There's a lot to happen over the next few weeks. Let's finish off then. We've got two test matches to go. It's tantalisingly poised. The whole nation is grabbed by it once again. It feels like 2005 take two. Are England going to win the Ashes? They need to obviously either win both test matches or get a, a win and a draw. Australia just need to win one of the final two test matches to guarantee themselves at least parity 
in this series and to keep the urn in their pockets. How is it going to go? We'll start with you, Akash. Your prediction for the final two test matches. Which captain is going to have the urn held above his head come the end of the Oval Test? Personally, I think uh, even though Tim Payne has not had a good series, I think he'll be the winning captain just because of the fact that uh, in, the fa- in the past three matches we've seen Australia's have made fewer mistakes than English uh, have done. So I think it, it gives them more opportunities or more chances to uh, win just one out of the last two games. And certainly with Smith back uh, in the team, it, it uh, just strengthens their batting order and uh, certainly they could possibly win one of, out of two games and then just like uh, get hold of their own. Ollie, I've got a funny feeling you want to go a different route. This is the point where I meant to say it will be Juru, and I, I like what you did there. That was quite a good pun. But I don't. I, I actually am going to change my mind. I think I think it'll be Tim Payne. I, I see them winning one of the last two tests. You know, the, the Headingley test, yes, it was exciting for us all, and we've got an amazing result out of it, but it did absolutely nothing to cure the doubts that, that we all have about this team. And it took an amazing freakish innings that likely won't be repeated for a very long time to get us over the line. As I say, we need to win the last two tests, basically, assuming that there's results in both. Uh, they just need to win one of the last two. All of a sudden, now I've got a bit of a bad feeling about it, so I'm sorry to be a, to be a bit of a pessimist, but I don't know. i just got a bad feeling. We came into this podcast celebrating success, and we've finished on a damp script like that. I'll tell you what my thoughts and feelings are. It depends which England turns up. It depends if England have learned any lessons. Evidence would suggest in the past that they don't learn lessons very quickly. But if they bat in the final two test matches like they batted in the second innings at Headingley, got every reason to believe if they bat like they did in the first innings, we have got not a cat in hell's chance. So they need to sit down. They need to be disciplined. They need to think about it. And they need to come back firing. Momentum is with England. Australia are metaphorically on their knees, but they have got 10 days to get back on their feet ahead of Old Trafford. There is one thing to for sure, though. This series has bubbled up rather nicely, hasn't it, as we head to Manchester. The Oval to come as well. I've got a funny feeling. I think England will win at Old Trafford and they will need to go to the Oval to take a draw in the final match. And it will be 2005 all over again. They will manage to see it through and they'll win the series by two games to one. So we'll finish on a positive after you two have been so negative about England's chances. We'll be back again next week with our preview. With no predictions today because obviously there's a bit of a gap between these two test matches. But we'll be back with our Paddy Power predictions competition as we head to Old Trafford. Until then, Ollie and Akash, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, if you want to uh, gamble on any of the uh, cricket that we talk about, then gamble responsibly with Paddy Power. And uh, thank you as well to Cricket365 for supporting this podcast. We'll be back, Ollie, myself and Akash next week to look ahead to Old Trafford. It's rather exciting. The Ashes has bubbled up. What a fantastic summer. The World Cup, the Ashes, it can't get any better as a cricket badger. We'll see you next week. Podcast Network. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.